Good afternoon, everybody. I don't want to I don't want to run short of time with John, but if you try to start now, and people can you know find places to sit down as we uh, go along. Uh, uh, for once, that cliche about not needing an introduction, uh, you know, really does apply, uh, as I think is shown by the audience here. Uh, John Goldthorpe has been writing for something over 40 years now. 50, I'm afraid. <laughs> Meeting journals on uh, issues of uh, social stratification, um, covering the range of theoretical, methodological, and substantive issues. Um, one of the things John's work has always done is to engage with other disciplines. Uh, and to do so, maintaining a distinctive sociological perspective, uh, but recognizing uh, the value of uh, other contributions uh, you know, from economics, psychology, and epidemiology. So uh, from an uh, advanced view of this presentation, I think the presentation today uh, you know, fits very directly in that sort of line uh, of, of John's work. And to say, I'm not going to waste any more time uh, so that we can get the maximum value from John. I'm going to hand over to John. Thank you, Chris. It's uh, very nice to be uh, back at UCD again. Um, well, my theme is, as you see, social inequality. And as you all know, over recent years, um, inequality has become an issue of growing uh, public and political concern in many um, advanced societies. This is somewhat new because in the period of the long boom from the end of World War II through to the uh, mid-1970s, it was widely believed that social inequality was in long-term decline. I mean, from the side of economics, one uh, had the Kuznets curve, which was taken to show that uh, income inequality widened in the takeoff into industrialism, uh, but then uh, steadily narrowed as uh, economic development uh, uh, continued. And at this time, economists also tended to believe that um, economic advantage and disadvantage was only rather weakly transmitted uh, from one generation uh, to the next, as indicated by the quite low correlations between uh, parental incomes and uh, children's incomes. And then, as you'll be well aware from the side of uh, sociology, rather similar arguments were advanced by uh, theorists of industrialism and of uh, post-industrialism. It was envisaged that uh, older, more rigid forms of social stratification were uh, giving away, were being succeeded by a rather amorphous socio-economic hierarchy uh, within which individuals' positions were determined less by ascription and more by achievement and especially uh, educational achievement. Well, from the end of the 1970s, these optimistic views about social inequality uh, became more and more questioned by economists and sociologists uh, alike. But in more recent times still, sociologists have tended to focus their attention on these long-term historic trends in social inequality, while economists have shown a much sharper shift of interest towards social inequality uh, in present-day uh, societies. And as a result of this, I think uh, that uh, in recent years, 
economists' uh, concerns have had a greater uh, resonance uh, with those prevailing uh, outside of academia. And underlying this shift of focus, I would say, have been factors both uh, external and internal to economics uh, as a discipline. Widening inequality in income and in wealth has, of course, been marked in many uh, advanced societies uh, in the recent past. The Kuznets curve, one could say, uh, is dead. And at the same time, technical improvements in the study of income mobility uh, have shown that uh, this is at a far lower level than was previously believed. Uh, early estimates of correlation between uh, parents' earnings and children's earnings of, say, 0.2 have now given way to estimates of 0.4 uh, or even uh, higher. And further, um, widening income inequality and this more realistic view of income mobility uh, has prompted economists to new thinking about the consequences of inequality. It was once widely uh, supposed that some kind of trade-off had to be made between greater equality on the one hand and greater uh, economic efficiency and growth uh, on the other hand. But now economists do seem more prepared to uh, consider the possibility that inequality may have its own uh, damaging effects on both efficiency uh, and on growth. And uh, furthermore, that inequality may have damaging effects on health and on other aspects of uh, individual uh, well-being and uh, social welfare more generally. And in this latter respect, I think a very interesting engagement has recently developed uh, between economists and epidemiologists. Uh, there's general agreement that richer people have, on average, better health than poorer people. But there's some sharp disagreement over whether, over and above these effects at the individual level, there are also population effects of inequality on health, or what sociologists might want to call contextual effects. Um, now, there are some uh, epidemiologists, such as uh, uh, Michael Marmot and uh, Richard Wilkinson, who believe that these population-level effects of inequality on health are indeed uh, well uh, established. And uh, they would, uh, for example, present uh, graphs uh, such as this, which uh, I've taken from uh, Richard Wilkinson's work with uh, uh, Kate Pickett. Uh, as you can see, what the graph indicates is that as uh, income inequality increases, life expectancy uh, declines. And if analyses such as this are accepted, one interesting implication is that um, uh, wealthy people in these highly unequal societies uh, such as USA or Portugal, uh, may in fact have no better health or even worse health than uh, poorer people in these uh, uh, societies of much greater equality, such as Sweden and uh, Japan. Um, however, most economists would be 
uh, sceptical of what we might call the Marmot-Wilkinson uh, view. And they would argue that correlations such as those displayed here uh, are not statistically very robust on a variety of grounds that uh, I won't uh, here uh, go into. Um, they would also suggest that no plausible mechanism has so far been ex uh, advanced that could uh, explain uh, this uh, kind of uh, pattern, supposing it uh, to be uh, uh, genuine. Now, all of this is, I think, very much uh, to be welcomed. It's good that in economics, the study of inequality has, uh, in the words of my colleague Tony Atkinson, come in from the cold. And it's good that epidemiologists have been brought into serious debate uh, with social scientists. But what for sociologists must, I think, be uh, very disturbing is the way in which in all of this, their distinctive, and I would want to say highly relevant uh, contribution, has been almost entirely disregarded. Now, one possible reason for this, I've already suggested that sociologists have tended to focus their attention on issues of uh, historic uh, trends in uh, inequality, rather than focusing specifically uh, on the present. But another reason, I, I think, is that both economists and epidemiologists do tend to remain remarkably fixed within their disciplinary paradigms, and thus seem to be either unaware of or deeply uncomfortable with uh, sociological concepts and, in turn, with the empirical research that has followed uh, from these uh, concepts. And so, in consequence, I want to suggest uh, a good deal of recent uh, research by economists and by epidemiologists has uh, run into uh, some difficulty. Uh, to develop this point, I first want very briefly to say something about what I take to be the distinctive sociological approach to social inequality and then go on to uh, consider uh, cases. Now, in discussing uh, inequality, economists uh, concentrate their attention on income and on wealth, and they may also refer to inequalities uh, in educational opportunity or uh, attainment. And in these respects, they are concerned with inequality in what might be called an attributional sense. Income, wealth, education are attributes of individuals of which they may have more or less. In contrast, sociologists tend to discuss inequality in terms of social class or of social status, and in this way to treat inequality in what I would call a relational sense. That is, in terms of relationships within which individuals are more or less uh, advantaged. And so in sociology, as uh, you will, um, most of you here be uh, aware, an increasingly common approach to social class is to treat this as being defined by social relationships within labor markets and uh, production units. And there are now available um, 
a, a number of, I think, well-validated uh, research instruments that enable this approach to social class to be implemented in uh, social uh, research. Uh, most uh, notably, perhaps, the uh, prototype uh, EU socioeconomic uh, classification. Now, economists may say that they are primarily interested in economic inequality rather than social inequality in some more general sense. But I would want to argue that the concept of social class, uh, understood in the way I've indicated, does in fact lead to a more comprehensive view of economic inequality than does a concentration on income uh, alone. It can, I think, be shown that individuals' class positions following, say, the EU or any similar uh, classification, individuals' positions differ systematically, not only in their level of current income, but in at least three other important respects. First, in their degree of income security, as this could be indexed by uh, risks of long-term or recurrent unemployment. Second, in terms of the, uh, their short-run income stability. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, in terms of their longer-term income prospects. And just to illustrate this uh, last point, uh, I'd like to uh, show this graph uh, showing age-wage curves uh, by uh, uh, social uh, classes uh, using here the uh, NSSEC uh, classification. What's notable is that with the uh, professional and managerial salariate, and especially its uh, uh, higher level, you can see earnings rising up until around age 50 when if you look at uh, the semi-routine and routine groups here of wage workers, their incomes rise very little uh, 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 after uh, the end uh, of the 20s. Uh, and what I would suggest here, that men in these different uh, social classes are really living in quite different economic worlds that a concentration simply on their levels of income uh, fails uh, to capture. Okay, so this emphasis on the relational rather than the purely attributional aspects of inequality uh, is one way in which the sociological approach to inequality is distinctive. A second way lies in a recognition of the fact that the structuring of social inequality, social stratification if you like, is more than one-dimensional at least since the time of Max Weber, uh, sociologists have thought about social inequality not only in terms of class, but also in terms of another relational concept, that of social status. The status order or status hierarchy is one formed by social relationships of superiority, uh, equality and inferiority that reflect prevailing evaluations of social worth, or if you like, honor. In earlier societies, status typically uh, attached to ascribed characteristics, to family, birth, uh, descent. In present day societies, status more often attaches to social positions, and in particular, 
to occupations, although it may also, of course, still attach to uh, racial or uh, to uh, ethnic uh, affiliations. And the most important way in which state the status order is expressed is in terms of intimate associations, associations such as close friendship or partnership uh, and marriage. Status equals are those who eat together and sleep together. Uh, but status differences are then further expressed in different lifestyles of uh, differing distinction that are thought to be appropriate to different status levels. And just as there are now available very good uh, instruments for uh, utilizing the concept of class in social research, so too are there very good instruments for utilizing the concept of uh, social uh, status, and especially social status as based on uh, occupation. And from these measures, what can then be shown is that while, as one might expect, individuals' class and status positions are correlated, the correlation is only a moderate one. In other words, class and status inconsistencies uh, can and uh, do uh, arise. In other words, class and status have to be seen as two qualitatively different forms of social stratification. Um, now, just to um, uh, give you, um, well, let me first of all say that it's in this respect, um, in the emphasis on stratification being more than one-dimensional, that sociologists most clearly differ from the prevailing view within epidemiology. Uh, Epidemiologists have for long been concerned with social inequalities or with what they tend to call social gradients uh, in mortality, morbidity and other aspects of health. But while epidemiologists show great care and sophistication in measuring these dependent variables of their uh, analyses, uh, their measurement of uh, social inequality seems for the most part, to be remarkably casual and ad hoc. And the underlying assumption seems to be that inequality is essentially one-dimensional. Uh, there's a single uh, social uh, hierarchy. And that individuals' positions in this hierarchy can then be uh, indicated by a variety of measures that are more or less interchangeable income, education, occupation as ordered by a, a variety uh, of criteria. But I want to argue that this assumption of one-dimensionality is quite uh, uh, unwarranted and that the sociological literature very clearly shows uh, that class and status are of differing importance for different outcomes. And just to um, illustrate this, uh, here's some results uh, of looking at the effects of class and status and some uh, other variables on uh, political attitudes on right-left and authoritarian libertarian uh, scales, scales which are quite well established in the literature. What you can see is in the case of right-left attitudes 
uh, income matters and so does social class in the way that you might uh, expect and status is of uh, uh, no uh, importance. However, when you come to look at authoritarian, libertarian attitudes, uh, it's status that is uh, important, uh, income does nothing and uh, uh, class uh, does nothing. Now, uh, these are, I think, uh, uh, intriguing and important results and they're ones that would be completely obscured if some one-dimensional uh, measure of stratification like some socio-economic status scale uh, had been used. Okay, um, so much for the uh, general position that uh, I want to take up. Uh, I want now to uh, turn to uh, cases. And the case I want to consider in relation to economists uh, is that of social mobility. Uh, in recent years in many countries, and especially in the UK, uh, social mobility has become a quite central uh, political issue. And it is one that is now attracting the attention of uh, international uh, bodies such as the um, OECD. Uh, however, what's notable about the reports that the OECD has produced is that they are written entirely by economists who never move beyond the limits of their own disciplinary uh, paradigm. Uh, social mobility is defined in terms of income mobility without any explanation or uh, justification. And what I want to try to show is uh, why this is uh, unfortunate. And I want to do so by referring to a debate in in which I and several colleagues have been involved uh, with uh, economists uh, in uh, Britain. Now, the economists involved here are Joe Blandon and her colleagues, and they investigated income mobility using uh, the uh, two birth cohort studies that cover all children born in Britain in one week in 1958 and then in one week in 1970. They related the earnings of the children in these samples when they'd reached age 30 to their family income uh, at the time of their early adolescence. And they then claimed to show that a much stronger association exists between children's earnings and their family income in the 1970 cohort than in the 1958 cohort. And on this basis, they argue that therefore uh, social mobility has uh, declined uh, over time. Um, however, together with a colleague, Michelle Jackson, uh, we went back to the uh, same birth cohort data. And instead of looking at income mobility, uh, we looked at mobility in terms of social class. And there we found no significant difference at all uh, between the 58 and 70 cohorts. And then with another colleague, Colin Mills, I brought together uh, data from 13 national uh, population surveys carried out between 1972 and uh, 2005, which give a much better basis for looking at uh, population trends than do the cohort studies. And on this basis, again, we found 
little significant change uh, across this entire period, only trendless uh, fluctuation in the level of uh, social fluidity. Now, there is, of course, no reason in principle why studies of income mobility and studies of class mobility should give uh, the same results. But it is at the same time of interest uh, to look into why they should uh, differ. And so, in a further paper with my colleague uh, Robert Erickson, we have gone back to the cohort studies and we've looked at only those individuals who figured in the uh, Blandon uh, research and in the study that I did with Michelle Jackson. That is to say, only those individuals for whom we've data on both income mobility and class uh, mobility. And uh, here are the uh, results uh, that we get. Uh, first of all, uh, note that we do confirm all previous findings. If you're looking at mobility in terms of five social classes for men and women, the constant social fluidity mid, uh, model fits uh, very well, and the UNIDIF model, which postulates some uh, uniform change in the level of social fluidity, uh, does uh, not improve. Uh, however, when you look at uh, income, you see what the economists found in effect, that uh, the UNIDIF model uh, does improve, the beta parameters um, are positive, uh, so that indicates uh, that uh, there was a strengthening of the association between children's earnings and family income from the 58 cohort to the 70 cohort. Well and good, but look now at the uh, G-squares for the independence model. And what you can see here is that they are higher, uh, clearly higher in the case of class mobility than in the case of income mobility, indicating that there's a much stronger uh, intergenerational association in the case of class than in the case of uh, income. And so to test this idea uh, uh, more directly, um, Erickson and I um, uh, calculated the global log odds ratios that you get if you progressively divide the five class mobility tables uh, into two by two tables. And here are the results that uh, we get uh, by averaging, uh, as you see, the odds ratios obtained from this two by two partitioning of the income uh, and class mobility tables. And what is clear is uh, that uh, the uh, odds ratios, whether you look at the weighted or unweighted ones, are higher in the case of class mobility than they are in the case of income mobility, and especially so uh, in the case of the uh, 1958 cohort. Now, in our paper on this, Erickson and I do in fact argue that the income measures the family income measures that the economists use uh, are suspect and that for this reason their result may be an artifact. But for my present purposes, I, I want to leave that aside. And the main point I want to make is that even if, as the economists claim, there were some decline in income mobility between these two cohorts, this nonetheless takes place within a class mobility regime that is both uh, more rigid and more stable uh, over time. 
And so the conclusion that I would draw from this is that studies of social mobility that are based on income mobility are in fact very likely to underestimate the extent of social immobility. That is the extent of persistence of advantage uh, from one uh, generation uh, to another. Um, I'll move on now to the case that uh, I want to consider uh, in regard to the um, epidemiologists. Well, let me just add that uh, uh, Ericsson and I did exactly the same thing looking at the relationship between um, social class on the one hand and family income on the other and children's educational attainment. And we get exactly the same result, that the association between family class and children's uh, educational attainment is clearly stronger than the association between family income and children's <coughs> educational attainment. So again, concentrating on income alone is likely to underestimate intergenerational uh, continuities. Okay, um, moving on to the epidemiologies, because time is getting short. Um, um, I showed you previously a graph taken from Wilkinson's work uh, relating income inequality to uh, mortality. Uh, here's another one that relates income inequality to an index that Wilkinson constructs, combining both measures of health and of the prevalence of a range of other social problems. And as you can see, it's much the same pattern. As income inequality increases, things get worse. Um, however, what's very important to note uh, here is that Wilkinson does not believe that it's the direct material consequences of inequality that are at work in creating uh, this pattern uh, here. Rather, he makes the assumption that I referred to earlier uh, that the structure of inequality is essentially one-dimensional and he therefore takes income inequality as being a good indicator of what he believes is the crucially operant factor, namely status uh, inequality. Um, for Wilkinson and others, it's the psychological stresses that are created by uh, status uh, inequality that are at work here. They affect health uh, in a quite direct way through various neuroendocrine mechanisms, and they also have uh, more pervasive effects through uh, inducing individuals uh, to smoke, uh, to overeat, to engage in sexual promiscuity, uh, in violent conduct, uh, and so on. Now, whether or not one agrees with this uh, uh, view of the consequences of uh, status inequality, and there are some epidemiologists who do not agree, for me, the real problem in Wilkinson's argument lies one stage uh, further back. And that is with his assumption that social stratification is one-dimensional and that the degree of status inequality can therefore be simply inferred from the degree of uh, income uh, inequality. Um, in fact, uh, if you look at measures of social status that I and others have developed, again, the, the correlation with income is only uh, quite modest. And if there is this uh, only modest correlation at the individual level, then it will be reasonable to suppose that the same thing may apply 
at the societal level. And in fact, there's one case that brings out this point uh, very clearly, and that is the case of uh, Japan, which is uh, at uh, extreme of this graph. Now, uh, Japan does have relatively low income uh, inequality, largely, I believe, because of relatively low earnings inequality. Um, but among students of comparative uh, social stratification, Japan is noted for having a, a very strongly defined status hierarchy and one that is to an unusual degree formalized and in fact embodied in language in the very widespread use of honorifics. Um, to quote a leading expert, uh, Harold Kerbo, the Japanese seem obsessed with ranking and hierarchy. In everyday life, it is only once relevant status markers have been established that the business of eating, talking, drinking, or whatever can proceed in an orderly manner that is unlikely to offend someone who expects greater status deference. And in fact, Kerbo suggests that for individuals in high-level positions, as say in the uh, corporate world, uh, high status and recognition of high status in part compensates for their relatively low uh, material rewards. So I think therefore the Japanese case uh, creates serious difficulties for Wilkinson's uh, position and ones that he's not uh, uh, grappled with. And just to make this same point in a more uh, positive uh, way, uh, I want to refer to some recent research uh, published by sociologists who have deliberately trespassed on the epidemiology's territory uh, by way of uh, objecting to this uh, one-dimensional approach uh, to uh, social inequality. And this is work by Robert Eriksson and Jenny Torshander, which covers the entire Swedish population uh, based on registration data and looks at the risks of mortality in relation to income and education as two attributional variables and at the same time in relation to social class and social status as to uh, relational variables. Now if you look at just the bivariate relationships here, uh, you get the kind of results, gradients you might expect in all cases I think except uh, income uh, uh, for women. So you might think on this basis that, yeah, these, these are just uh, interchangeable uh, indicators. They all pick up people's positions more or less in some single uh, social hierarchy. But look now at the results you get when you put uh, all four variables in the analysis together. And note, without any problems of multicollinearity. Now what you see is that uh, in the case of uh, men, uh, class is still important and is income, uh, uh, education is important in both cases, I should say, and remains important. But looking at the other three variables, class, income and class are important in the case of men, but not status, whereas uh, for women, it, it's rather the uh, other way uh, 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 around. And it, what's interesting is that Ericsson and Toshonda in another paper have gone on to look here at the importance of spouse or partner effects. And they produce one very interesting finding that you might like uh, to take away with you. Um, if 
you are a woman and you want a long life, the best thing you can do is to take up with a man who has a high class position and a big income. However, if you're a man and you want a long life, the best thing you can do is to take up with a woman with high status and a good education. Uh, so I think that really brings out the, um, the, the, the main point that uh, I want to, um, uh, to, to, to make here. I mean that um, uh, soci sociologists, through their concepts and through a body of empirical research based on these concepts, do have a very uh, I think distinctive uh, contribution to make to the study of social uh, inequality. But we have been... Uh, rather lax in insisting on this and uh, we've uh, left uh, far too much to the uh, economists and to the epidemiologists. Uh, all credit to them for taking this opportunity but I think we now have to come back and point out that in many ways uh, their uh, work could be uh, improved on if they took uh, uh, sociology rather more seriously. Thank you. Fascinating presentation. I suspect we've ordered two economists in the audience, and maybe even one or two. <laughs> so I'm sure John will be happy to take uh, questions. Neil. She's a sociologist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When I knew you, you were a sociologist. <laughs> Let me just make one preliminary point. When you put status in the analysis, it is interesting uh, to um, see the results that you get for education. Notice that here, in regard to the right-left thing, they're curvilinear. The most left-wing people are the, um, uh, the people with no qualifications and the people with degrees. The most right-wing are the people in the middle. And then over here, the education effect you get really only kicks in at the higher level. The, the higher, level, higher qualified are more uh, libertarian. And I think if you don't put status in, you get a different effect for education, which might be misleading. Okay, on the measurement of status, the approach that I think empirical researchers in this field have taken really goes back to uh, Max Weber and the idea that... Uh, uh, you can use patterns of intimate association to try and uh, establish a status hierarchy. And the pioneering work was really done by Ed Lauman uh, in, uh, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. I think the definitive study is Lauman's Prestige and Association in an Urban Community, and then a later book called Bonds of Pluralism. And Lauman's work never really 
took off and captured interest because at the same time Dudley Duncan came up with his measure of uh, uh, his socio-economic index and for the kind of work that was being done in stratification at that time uh, this was just so convenient for path analysis that Duncan's work really just took over and swamped uh, Lauman's contribution. But um, several people, including Takwing Chan and myself, have come back to this. The way these measures are derived is you take some um, indicator of intimate association. It could be close friendship, uh, it could be marriage or cohabitation partnership. Uh, and you treat this on an occupational basis and you simply draw up uh, a table of uh, uh, bivariate table with respondents occupational group here defined as uh, uh, narrowly as possible and the uh, occupation of friends close friends or partners on the other dimension and you compare each uh, percentage distribution uh, and indicate it by an index of dissimilarity that gives you a half matrix of indices of dissimilarity and then you simply use this as input to some multidimensional uh, scaling procedure other such like cluster analysis and what then you typically find is that the leading dimension is one that can I think very readily be interpreted as uh, a measure of, uh, of social status and I think perhaps the best validation of this procedure is with results like this and then with results that uh, we got in our study of uh, cultural consumption uh, two or three years ago that are now reported in a book edited by uh, Tak Ming Chan showing that it is status as measured in this way that is the really important uh, explanatory variable in relation to patterns of cultural consumption rather than class rather than income it's status and education that are important but they're not the same thing uh, you you need both both variables in there uh, so that's basically how it how it's done there is quite a big literature uh, on this what some people have done is to use the cambridge scale as a measure of status and that's quite reasonable as long as you take the cambridge scale as a measure of status and not as its authors would like you to do as um, a sort of generalized measure of social advantage and, uh, and disadvantage. It works quite well uh, as a measure of status. Yeah. <coughs> I'm speaking as an outsider who's a system analyst with an interest in economics. Yes. Uh, and I, I had intended to ask a question exactly about um, that um, 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 screen you have there now. Yeah. Um, um, what is the meaning of um, 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 right left as compared to authoritarian okay. and libertarian yeah. in terms of scales? Yeah. Because it seems to me that these scales are in a sense um, basically the same. Although um, it may be quite different, I don't know. Oh, no. Uh, the, well, they always do. Uh, the questions that are asked in this case. It's questions about uh, relative political power of the rich and poor, views on uh, trade unionisms and freedom uh, action of trade unions, questions on uh, uh, redistributive taxation and things of this kind. Over here, it's questions having more to do with uh, individual uh, 
rights, um, uh, um, sexual freedom, uh, um, freedom from censorship and uh, uh, th th things, things of this kind. And uh, individuals' responses uh, on these uh, uh, scales uh, are very far from correlating, that they are very, uh, very different. This table comes from uh, a paper that Takwing Chan and I have in the American Sociological Review, I forget, it's about two or three years ago, but I can give you the exact reference after, but you will then find the actual questions that these scales are based on. They're not our scales, they're very widely used uh, 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 scales in the uh, political sociology literature. Yeah. Thank you, Charles. Mm. That was a very clear presentation. Um, I was wondering how you were, when you were talking, though, whether when you're setting up a competition between class on the one hand, yeah. On the other, yeah. um, whether it matters whether you take a point in time measurement of income or yes. whether you take a lifetime earnings concept. Okay. Closer to the concept. Yeah. Well, when I refer to um, technical improvements in the study of uh, income uh, mobility, what I was referring to was uh, precisely time averaging of, uh, of, of parental and uh, children's uh, income. And once you, you, you average over some period of time, rather than just taking one-shot measures, then that's what brings the correlation up from point 0.2 that uh, Gary Becker reported up to 0.4 or, or 0.5 in the later work. Um, so that's an improvement that the um, economists uh, have made, I think, and a very, a very important one. Um, but I have still difficulty with... Uh, two concepts that economists regularly come up with, and perhaps you can help me here. One is the concept of permanent income, and the other is the concept of lifetime income. I mean, I understand conceptually what I've been trying to get at here, but I'm not convinced so far by what I've seen of the empirical measures of these uh, factors, because if... Um, which way am I going? No, I want to go. I mean, it, it does depend... I mean, if, if you think this is the way in which, in terms of social class, incomes evolve over the life course, I mean, where, where, if you do time averaging, where do you do it? I mean, if you do it here, probably or here, makes no difference uh, for working class people. But if you do it here or here, it makes a very big difference uh, for, um, for salaried uh, workers. And I must say, I've never got any straight answers uh, to economists on how they move from the concept of permanent income to its empirical measurement, or indeed to the concept of, 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 of lifetime income. If what, sorry, Billy? Um, is it the case that in, implicit in your comments um, on the Eve's question, yeah. that you would hold the view that status orders still remain a very firm or strong feature of social ah. relations, that they haven't, yeah. they haven't declined in any way, uh, other than perhaps in the area of social yeah. development. Uh, it's a very good uh, question. Um, I think my answer would be that I think there has, if one reads the history of the 19th century, even of the interwar period, I think one would have to say that uh, the status order is no longer as 
open uh, overt uh, as, as, as it was. I mean, it's not now generally acceptable, as it were, in public uh, to regard somebody as one's uh, social uh, inferior. And of course, a lot of indications of status deference, like, you know, captugging and sir and madam and, and so on, have, have largely uh, disappeared. But um, I wonder what remains underneath. And I think, in a way, the status order has become more, more covert. And there have been one or two rather interesting uh, ethnographic uh, studies uh, done of this which do suggest that when people feel they're not speaking in public, they're speaking within their own status circles, they are still quite ready to uh, give expressions of status uh, superiority and inferiority. And if you then take, um, you know, Weber's idea that uh, status equals those who eat together and sleep together, there's not uh, any very good evidence that this kind of occupational uh, petitioning in uh, intimate social life uh, has diminished. I think it's a, a topic that could do with more research, but it's not clear to me that uh, at the level of patterns of differential association, uh, that there's been a, a, any great change here. <coughs> chiseling away at the point that Philip was making. Mm. Uh, let's suppose you're living in Sweden, like yeah. you're a long-standing co-author, yeah. and you have reliable information on people's incomes that you actually believe yeah. for each year for their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Do you need social class? Well, this is a question you should uh, direct to Robert Erickson, um, and, but I think his answer would, uh, would be yes. Uh, and I think he could produce uh, evidence uh, um, in favor of that. But let's suppose uh, even that he couldn't. Um, I would still say that um, from a research point of view, uh, class still would remain for most people a preferred measure because it's only in a very few countries, Sweden being one of them, where you could hope to get reliable records of individuals' lifetime earnings. So um, I would still say that, um, uh, that, uh, that, 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 that social class for, for, for most people would be, would be the desirable variable. Eventually, socialism may get a bit different, <laughs> but not quite. <laughs> um, kind of following on as well, I'm just wondering if an economist was to be uh, territorial about this, yeah. um, would it be reasonable for them to say that given the difficulty with measuring status and yeah, yeah. elusiveness, that maybe wealth or household assets could, could pick up exactly what that is thinking about? Well, you know, like the previous one, that's, that's an empirical uh, question, and one would just have to see um, what happened. But um, there are indeed difficulties in measuring status, and, and there are difficulties in measuring uh, class. But I would say that... Uh, Sociologists have by now done a good deal of work on testing the validity of these measures in various ways. And of course, there are great difficulties in measuring income uh, and in measuring household assets. One of the reasons why Ericsson and I had to match um, the respondents from the two cohorts for whom we had 
data on both income and uh, uh, class mobility was because the numbers for whom there's information on income mobility are so much smaller just because of uh, non-response. People are very reluctant to tell you about their incomes. And then again, the problems that the economists had, and they were very frank about this, in comparing family income from one cohort to another, I mean, it was measured in completely different ways. One, it's measured gross. The other, it's measured net. In one, it's measured including child benefits. In the other, it's measured not including child, and so on. So they had an enormous amount of, uh, of, 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 of uh, work to do in, in trying, I think not altogether successfully, in, in, in getting comparable measures from one cohort to another. And again, from my own work on these uh, cohort studies, measuring... Uh, you know, household consumer durables or assets it, 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 it is not easy. So I don't think there's much between it in, in terms of ease, ease of measurement. And there is this problem with income that you always get much greater item non-response. Yeah, the last time we met you, I was on the, the cabinet committee on yes. social mobility. The yeah, income. exactly. And I think what struck me at that meeting was, in terms of, come back to the issue of economists versus others, was that... <laughs> Economists spent a lot of time focusing on, as well as the measurement issues, but also the methodological issues. Yeah. In concepts like endogeneity and causality and so on. Sure. And very much the dominant force in the econometrics work in this field. And as somebody you know, at a college at Oxford that blends traditions of different disciplines in social sciences, I mean, what's your sense that methodological paths yeah. have separated <laughs> and, and as a means, as a blockage to some of the dialogue? Well, I think you're right that uh, there is uh, a very big uh, division here and I'm involved in this in a particular, we got to a particular issue at the present time and that is measuring um, uh, earnings returns to education. And as you know, economists here want to get some um, uh, well-identified parameter here of, uh, that will give you the earnings returns to a given level of education. Their problem is, of course, that there are things that affect uh, somebody's educational performance, such as their parental background or their cognitive ability, that will also affect their earnings. So somehow these confounding factors have to be controlled for. And as you know, there's an enormous literature on how to do this by uh, matching, propensity scoring, instrumental variables, and so on. But when, after all this, they come out with the parameter of interest, which says this is how much one extra step up the qualification ladder will give you in terms of earnings, it's, I've never seen that then applied uh, to, uh, I mean, predict uh, something from, from an, another another data set. And it comes back here to what one of my favorite statisticians, David Friedman, has said. Do you really believe that these parameters have a life of their own outside of the data from which they were calculated? And I don't think they do. Uh, I think if, if they have any validity, it's only historic validity. And so I must say I'm very skeptical about the econometrician's belief that you can crank causation out of purely statistical analysis, however sophisticated. And I believe sociologists are right to take a more descriptive uh, view here of uh, regression or whatever other kind of analysis uh, that they do. 
And then, if they believe that there is some underlying causal process, underlying the stati descriptive statistical regularities that they show, spell that out and test it more directly, rather than trying to crank out causation from, uh, uh, from the regression or whatever other models are used. But I agree, it, it's, it's a very big, uh, uh, very big divide. And uh, there's now a great deal of, I think, philosophical interest in this. If you look at uh, Nancy Cartwright's uh, recent uh, writings on, on causation, I think uh, they're, they're, they're quite revealing in this respect. John? <clears throat> I, uh, um, I've, I work in the Equality Studies Center here, which is an interdisciplinary group yeah. for the study of inequality that we've been working mm -hmm. for 20 years. And, um, and so the whole, a lot of what you said about the importance of it breaking down disciplinary mm -hmm. boundaries and so on is, is obviously you know, absolutely central to the way we approach these issues. And the idea of multi-dimensional <coughs> measures mm. of inequality is also something that we would be taking seriously. Mm. Um, I mean, I suppose one question is is the question of you know, why stop at two dimensions? Yeah. You know? And that, of course, depends on what your purpose yeah. is yeah. In, in doing things. In terms of when we look at inequality from a kind of yeah. perspective, sure. we think that mm -hmm. it's useful to think in terms of five dimensions. Yeah. Um, but even in terms of empirical explanations of inequality, mm. I suppose the, the most straightforward question would be that you know, if you start with a Weberian um, starting point where Weber distinguishes a third group under the alien, party or power or whatever, why not work something to do with power inequalities into explanations of why, why is that what sorry the power power yeah power okay um, well yeah and then i mean the, the other question i was just going to ask yeah. rose from some of the other questions mm -hmm. here is that um i mean i can see the the methodological problems about class and income and so on but, but one interesting question is surely the degree to which class position affects income so when we want to keep those two measures at least in, in principle, a way of separating so that you can actually look at the yeah. connection between Well, of course, on the power question, if you go back to Weber, he, he did this, did have this as a, uh, as it were, his third dimension, class, well, well, he said actually class status and party, oh, and right. said all of these were dimensions of power, which I would be sympathetic to. By party, it seems he meant the kind of people, the kind of uh, power that people have through their membership of organizations of one kind or another, not just political parties, but uh, trade unions, professional associations, and all kinds of, as it were, protective uh, and lobbying uh, organizations of, of that nature. And I have no uh, objection to going on beyond the two or more dimensions, provided that, you know, one can come up with some reasonable measures uh, uh, here that can be applied in empirical work and that, and that pay off. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it might be of interest to try and develop this idea of, if you like, organizational power. I'm going to abuse my power <coughs> here to ask John a question because <coughs> I know he has interesting views <coughs> in this. And, and that's the sort of connection between mm. uh, these you know, theories of particularly health inequality and the yeah. public discourse. Yeah. Mean, in, in Ireland, as in the UK, certain very prominent journalists have latched on to Wilkinson's oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. ideas. 
and was left with a situation where, in fact, the only left-wing perspective on health inequalities becomes that, what I think is very simplified view. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, what the work you're talking about, it seems yeah. to me, opens up the opportunity of having a rather more nuanced view of, yeah. of, of yeah. what does this. Yeah. just interesting your ideas. Well, yeah, I mean, this is very much the case in Britain. I would say that over the last 10 years, you see, the two pieces of work that have attracted most public interest and political interest in the general field of social inequality have been the work of Blandon and uh, her colleagues on um, uh, mobility and the Wilkinson and Pickett uh, book on inequality and health and, and social problems. In other words, work by economists and uh, epidemiologists. And uh, as I suggested, the sociologists are in large part to blame for this uh, in, in Britain because uh, as vast tracts of university departments of sociology are given over to, well, I don't know what they do, but it doesn't have very much relevance, it seems to me, to what's going on in the, in the real world around them. But um, then those of us, and I blame myself here, who do more quantitative and I hope uh, analytically somewhat more rigorous work, we have been preoccupied with these debates about what happened over the last century and uh, have not perhaps focused on the, um, uh, on, on the present time enough. And it, as Chris said, it, it, it has had a very, um, uh, um, I think, disturbing effect uh, on uh, politics because it has been thought that in some ways these people did reflect the centre-left uh, position. And, uh, well, as I've indicated, that would not be uh, something I would be, I would be very, um, very comfortable with. Um, and uh, it... That's why I think it really is up to uh, uh, sociologists to, to get in there and where we think the economists and the epidemiologists uh, um, uh, are offline in certain respects to engage with them and, 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 uh, uh, and, and try and bring out the relevance of, uh, of our own views. <clears throat> I'd like to thank John for what is, as usual, an absolutely fascinating presentation and, and, and a stimulating discussion. And whatever about the general decline in deference, those of us who have known John for a long time will continue to be very happy to defer to him. Thank you very much. Thank you.